Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, we're continuing our way through the gospel of the King in the book of Matthew. Uh, As we do that this week, we're going to be looking particularly at Matthew 15, uh, at killing traditionalism, killing traditionalism in these first nine verses. As we do this, we're going to see together this morning that only Jesus and his word have the power to transform our hearts. Only Jesus and his word have the power to transform our hearts. We begin reading in Matthew 15, verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Well, James chapter 1, James writes, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only. For if any man is a hearer and not a doer, he is like a man that looks at himself in a mirror and then walks away and forgets what kind of man he's like. I was thinking about that this week, and I brought with me a mirror this morning. Now, this isn't one I use a lot, but it's one I can see myself in, and maybe if you look real close, so you can see yourself in it as well. But mirrors display to us what it is that is before us. But the trick I've noticed about mirrors uh, throughout my life, particularly as I age, is that I'm good at looking at myself at the right angle. In other words, I kind of, you know, hold it up. My hairline's not receding like I think it is. You know, I hold, oh, that, that's a nice full head of hair. It's just like it always was. Nothing's changing. Oh, no, your waistline's not changing at all. It's just like it always was. You know, you kind of suck it in when you look at yourself in the mirror. And so mirrors, they kind of reveal to us, you know, who we are or what we're like. But often we kind of look at ourselves, I guess, I don't know, at the angle that tells us the version of ourselves. It's a true version, but it's a version that we like to look at. Now, I've noticed, though, that, uh, that video cameras or, or pictures, they don't do that for us. You know, they say, well, the camera adds 15 pounds. Well, that's not really true. It just catches us, you know, we're not quite sucking it in maybe the same way. Or maybe have you ever been at a meal and, and someone takes a picture of you while you're, you know, stuffing your mouth full of food? There's no way of making that look good. It just, it just is what it is, and it, it makes us, you know, it displays us for who we are. We often want to kind of look at ourselves in certain ways, and yet, mirrors, images, videos, pictures reveal to us something that is already true. It's already true about us. And God's word is like that. It reflects back on us like a mirror who we are. And sometimes it's encouraging. Other times it kind of reveals things about us. It's like, I don't like that angle very much. And this morning, Jesus uses the word of God to reflect on a group of people. Here is the Pharisees and scribes, an image of themselves that they're not really interested in seeing. You see, these men come to Jesus to attack him in verses 1 and 2. 
Well, as the book of Matthew builds toward the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry, what happens is the conflicts, some of which we've already seen, begin to escalate. And Matthew 15 is the most pointed attack, the most pointed point of conflict, really, that we've seen in the life of Christ to this point. Well, in verse 1, we find Jesus facing a very familiar group of people, the scribes and Pharisees. But here, Matthew calls them the Pharisees and the scribes. He lists them in a little bit different order. It's the only time he lists them in this order. We've got these two groups, and they are similar but not identical. In other words, the scribes are a group of experts in the law. They're people who have committed themselves to studying the law, the Old Testament, and teaching that to other people. Now, many of the scribes, most of them are Pharisees. Now, there's a small group of scribes that aren't Pharisees, but most of them are Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are a little bit larger group of people. They're a group of people that kind of represent a political or religious ruling class in Israel at this time. So many of them are scribes, but many of them are not. So it's kind of like this. The Pharisees represent a class of people, and the scribes represent a very specific vocation. And and there's a lot of blend, so we think of those two groups as identical, but they're not exactly identical. There's a lot of crossover, but there are some differences as well. Well, Jesus has encountered groups of these people throughout his ministry, but this group in particular is a little bit different. In other words, Matthew tells us, verse 1, that they are from Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about the geography of Israel, and as we track through the life of Christ, Jesus' ministry centers largely in the northern region of Israel. So if you look at the the north part of this map, you've got the Sea of Galilee. Well, Jesus' base for ministry is in Capernaum, right on the north side there, and then he recently landed in the region of Gennesaret, just to the west. Well, Jesus has centered his ministry there. Well, if you track down, way down south in this map, you find Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a long way from Galilee. In fact, it took some effort, some intentional effort on the part of these scribes to make their way up to Jesus. Now, they're not here for a social call. Matthew tells us they didn't come to Galilee. They came to Jesus. In other words, they're there to see him and they're there to confront him. They're here for a specific reason. Jesus has been a thorn in the side of the so-called religious establishment, the scribes and the Pharisees and everything they represent. And so they've called in the big guns now to challenge Jesus. You might say these are the special ops forces, the Navy SEALs, the Armor Rangers. I mean, they're here, they're from Jerusalem, and they're here to challenge Jesus. We find them in verse 2 attacking Jesus with a specific accusation. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Now, the tradition of the elders represents a specific set of teaching from a specific group of people. In other words, as, as, uh, as God's people sought to understand God's words, God's rules, and, and God's uh, principles as he had written, him down, uh, written them down, over time there came to be kind of an established set of principles that would help understand the word itself. And so it was sort of like a commentary on Scripture. So you have, you know, you have the Old Testament... And then about the Old Testament, the the scribes, the experts would establish, the rabbis would establish a tradition to help understand that. It was sort of intended as a commentary about what God had said. But what happened over time is that this commentary, rather than becoming a commentary about what God had said, became an authority in and of itself. So the tradition of the elders becomes its own authority. 
And if you know anything about the Word of God, you know that there are 600 plus, uh, scholars have estimated there are 613 commandments in Scripture itself. So you've got this set of commandments, and then on top of this, you've got this tradition that is now piled on top of those commandments, and it, and it really becomes an overwhelming burden. It's almost impossible to keep. So the only people who could really interpret this tradition are the scribes. And the burden of keeping the law plus the tradition was absolutely crushing. So by the time we get to the first century, to be a respected religious teacher, you not only have to know the law of God, you have to also know the tradition of the elders. So in the view of the Pharisees and scribes, these people here, to turn your back not just on the law itself, but on the tradition surrounding the law is to turn your back on the faith, on their faith. Now what's the specific question that they have here? It relates to hand-washing. Now, as you all know, I've told you recently, hand-washing is something we do in our house because it's important to my wife. But, but what they're not concerned here uh, primarily with is, is hygiene. So they're not really looking at, you know, cleansing germs before you come and eat. Rather, they're talking about ceremonial cleanliness. So in Exodus 30, verses 17 through 21, God outlined expectations for priests who are going to minister in the temple. And so priests, when they're coming and they're coming to either minister to people or offer sacrifices, they were required to wash both their hands and their feet. There's specific laws relating to priests in the temple and their ministry here. Well, the tradition of the elders takes this principle, this ceremonial cleanliness, and it extends it to all of life. And so they add all of these other requirements to it, and then they make it apply to all people at all times. And so the accusation here has to do with eating a meal. Verse 2, they do not wash their hands when they eat. So Exodus 30, 17 to 21, how many verses are there in the Old Testament about this? There are five verses, five verses about this specific question. But by this time, the tradition has taken those five verses and ex expanded them to an entire book. There's an entire treatise in their tradition about washing hands and all the cases that apply to hand washing. In cleansing, this kind of cleansing can happen only in running water. So you can't go to a bowl and wash your hands. Someone has to pour the water over your hands, which in a day when you don't have running water can be quite a challenge. And so what we have here in, in the life of Israel is you've got the law. In other words, God clearly sets out his expectations for his people. And in this law, he communicates to them his will for a number of areas of their life. But over time, what happens is they're concerned about breaking the law. And so they set up what, what sometimes is called a hedge or a fence around the law. That's their tradition. That Jewish documents call this a hedge around the law. Now, what's the intention of this hedge? The, the intention of the hedge is to keep you from breaking the law itself. So it's sort of like, well, if here's the edge, well, let's, let's move the edge over here so that, so that we stay further away from the edge of breaking the law itself. Now, the difficulty of this is that there's not one edge. There are always two edges. There's legalism on one side, and there's liberty license kind of on the other side. And, and so what happens is over time, as people begin to know the tradition, sometimes even better than the law, it kind of blurs out the distinction. And so the tradition and the law become kind of one body of kind of governing authority, you might say, over the religious, political, cultural life of Israel. Tradition becomes equal to the law itself. 
Well, this isn't uniquely a first century problem, is it? I mean, this happens in our life today. I mean, in the broadly Christian sense, in the broadly Christian sense, there are churches today that not only is this an idea, it's an established part of their teaching. So, for instance, in Orthodox churches, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox churches, they have alongside Scripture, they have an established church tradition. This is also true in the Roman Catholic Church. There's a capital T tradition, a teaching alongside Scripture, and they call it, in their, in their cases, a sacred or a holy tradition. So you've got Scripture, and then you've got capital T tradition, and these things kind of exist side by side, and sometimes they blur into one another. In fact, over time, if you're not careful, the tradition becomes sort of the lens through which you begin to interpret Scripture itself. So now you look at Scripture, and you can't see it apart from the lens of tradition. But if your life is like my life, it's not just an out there problem, is it? It's, it's an in here problem. We've got our own traditions as well. We're a little more subtle about it. We don't call it sacred tradition or holy tradition, but we've got our traditions too. But there's a reason there are books written about churches, and they call them how to kill sacred what? Cows. Not because there are literal cows in churches, but because those cows are sort of a metaphor for traditions within the life of the church. And the way we think about this a lot of times is that, you know, Old people have traditions in sacred cows and young people don't. But that ain't the way it works. We just got different traditions and different sacred cows. It's, it's, it's not a young old problem. It's not a, it's not a Roman Protestant problem. It's not a Jewish Christian problem. It's a human problem. We, we tend to take our expectations and sort of erect alongside Scripture a set of expectations. And over time, it's real easy to equate those expectations with Scripture itself. Now, now, here's, here's, I'm going to try to illustrate this, and don't worry, we're not going to re- go real, down, real far down this road, so we're not going to make anyone too uncomfortable here, I hope. Let's just talk about worship style for a minute, all right? Now, I know no one here has any thoughts about or preferences about worship, but we'll pretend that some people do. So imagine, theoretically, this can't be true, but theoretically, on one side of the, the aisle are people who have kind of a more traditional set of traditions or preferences when it comes to worship. They like things like organs, you know, kind of traditional instruments that they think of, maybe a traditional set of dress or even a traditional, I don't know, a robe on a choir member or something like that. So you got that kind of on, on one side. And on the other side, you have people who are, I'll say, less traditional. And you might say, I don't know, uh, more, uh, more contemporary or more carefree. They have le- less, you know, kind of, they have d- different ideas, but they, you know, man, if they saw a, a robe on someone, they'd be like, I'm out. Or they want drums or guitars. They want something different. Now, how do you know, you know, if it becomes a tradition. Well, on the one side, you get people that, you know, have a preference over here. On the other side, people have preference over here. Now, no one's probably going to sit here and God's word says, we have to worship this way. Now, you might say it's an established preference or tradition, but on the other side, you got a people, and they're probably not going to say, well, you have to worship this way either. But a lot of times, it's real easy for us to check out on each other when things are kind of flowing the opposite way. But, but here's where I'm going to illustrate. It's not just an old, young problem. So old people might have a hard time when it kind of I don't know, progresses over this way. But a lot of times, young people check out when it's over here too, right? I mean, we, we will kind of check out on each other, which shows us at some level that tradition sometimes can elevate over even kind of our relationships with one another. And the one reason I know this isn't a, it's not, it's not a, it's not an old young issue is I'll, I'll give you an illustration. I won't tell you his name, but there's a really faithful member at our church we were serving at before here. 
And, uh, and over time, before we got there, you know, the tradition kind of, of, the, of the worship had, had morphed in that church. And actually, when I got in there, it was kind of every Sunday was contemporary Sunday, so drums and kind of the whole bit. And I looked, and there's a good portion of this congregation that were, that were older. And I said, you know what, let's love and serve these people. And so we began one Sunday a month to have what we called piano-only Sunday. And that was sort of a Sunday where the old people felt like they got some relief, you know, from what was going on the other Sundays. But what happened was there was a, a really a, a faithful member of that church who'd been there a long time, walked with the Lord a long time, and he had difficulty uh, making his way around the church. So he began sitting, it was right on my front, right on, on this front row. Now, that was a difficult spot for an old person to sit in our church because right there where that organ is sitting are the drums. But that man, who was very outspoken in terms of his worship preferences, sat there not because he loved the drums, he didn't, but because he valued the opportunity to worship together. And I look at that and I say, there's someone who had a very strong preference. He was a very vocal member of the church. But he was willing at some level to set aside his preference for the sake of something that he found difficult to worship with his brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I had some young people in that church who struggled with the idea of setting aside one Sunday to serve those who were older. All this to illustrate, this is an announcement about, and just for the record, this is not an announcement about worship style here. I'm just saying it's not an old, young thing. We've all got preferences, and we all have kind of little, little case T traditions and capital T traditions. So every church has capital T traditions. So how do we know what those traditions are? And how do we know when we're moving from kind of a, a tradition that is okay to something that becomes a capital T, overtakes the Scripture itself, tradition? And that's where Jesus heads next in his response, verses 3 to 6. Well, Jesus sort of ups the ante here in verse 3. He doesn't merely respond with a rebuttal. Matthew tells us he accuses them. So they've accused his disciples. Now he accuses them. Well, in Galatians chapter 2, you have a situation. It's very awkward. You've got two apostles. You've got Paul and you've got Peter. And Peter, in Acts chapter 10... God sends a vision to Peter and tells him it's okay to eat with Gentiles. Well, in Galatians 2, Paul tells us a story. God has already told Peter, it's okay to eat me with Gentiles. But Peter encounters a group of people who are against that idea, and so he kind of backs away from what God has told him, and for the sake of appearances, he refuses to eat this meat now with the Gentiles. When this happens, Paul tells us he withstood him to his face. He accused him, he confronted him publicly, because... Peter's conduct, his way of living, was so out of keeping with the gospel, that the gospel is for all people, that Paul knew, I have to confront this in a way that shows how wrong this is. You see, Peter's public sin required public confrontation. And the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples publicly, and he then accuses them publicly. And he even escalates the accusation. So they accuse the disciples of breaking what? The T, capital T, tradition. And Jesus accuses them of breaking the commandment of God. Now, everyone can agree, you got the elders, but when you got God, you better listen up. And so he escalates what happens. And then he changes the conversation from theoretical, the tradition of the elders, to personal. They claim that the tradition of the elders is their authority, but Jesus says their real concern is their tradition. Look again at verse 3. He says, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Boom. 
I mean, he put it right out there. Now, there are many examples that Jesus can point to here, but he chooses just one, and that's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, and then he adds to it, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. He quotes from Exodus 20 and 21 to make his point. Verse 5, but you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. The law says to honor his parents, and that anyone who even speaks evil of father or mother should be put to death. That's real clear. But But the tradition of the elders had created a loophole in what God said. Leviticus 27 establishes kind of a separate principle. It's a a principle of Corbin. This means gift. In other words, as you walk through life, and you can kind of look aside, and and let's just just imagine, all right, you get get an inheritance, and it's $10,000, and you say, okay, I'm going to set aside $1,000 of this uh, to be given to God. You sort of reserve that for God. Well, that's Corbin. It's reserved for God. It's a gift to be offered to God. But the tradition had added a loophole to that, and that was this that you could say, all right, this $1,000 is reserved for God, but you don't actually have to give it. Now, how clever is that? You can say, it's a gift to God, but you don't actually have to give it to God. And in not giving it to God, you're not allowed to use it for other things, theoretically, but you don't actually give it. And so what happened is, over time, greedy Pharisees had set up a system that allows them to abuse the elderly by reserving for themselves money they want to keep for themselves by saying it's a gift to God but not giving it to the Lord. And so in verse 6, when he quotes them, the language is the strongest possible language, but you say he need not honor his father. It's a double negative. You're saying there's by no way that he has to honor his parents. It is not necessary to do what God says because of what men say. So in response to their strong rejection of God's commands, Jesus again uses strong personal language. He goes on to say, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And then he brings it, he says, you hypocrites. Well, this is the first time that Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. It won't be the last. I mean, Jesus has no room at all for traditional religion that sets itself up as the authority over against the word of God itself. So let's think about this. Let's think about what happened in the life of the Pharisees. They've got the law. You might say the word of God, the scripture. And over time, to protect that, they set up their tradition. And the tradition was a hedge, a fence around the law to protect the law. Well, then over time, you kind of lose that distinction. The the tradition and the law itself kind of become blended, become one, and people lose the distinction between the two. And what's the ultimate outcome of this is that over time, Scripture no longer is the authority, but rather now the tradition itself is the authority over the word. And that's what Jesus says. He says, first of all, you've got this tradition, you've got the law, but now you have made void the word of God itself for the sake of your tradition. Now, we've got to be careful here. There's a distinction between any tradition and what we're calling traditionalism. So it's like this. Uh, we've got a way that we take uh, the offering. In our church. And again, this is not an announcement. There are no changes to the offering upcoming. I'm just using this as an example. 
And in our church, what we do is we pass the plate. And that's actually been true in every church that I've attended pretty much. Is there's a, but there are other churches where they have a, a collection box in, the, box in the back or the front or they do it different ways. Now, is it right to pass the plate? Well, it can be right. Is it wrong not to? Well, not necessarily. It's just, it's just a way of doing that, a way of worshiping God through giving. Is it wrong to have a collection box in the back or the front? Well, no, it's not wrong. Is it right? Well, not necessarily. It's, it's, it's a way of kind of living out what God tells us in his word. Well, how do you know if that's you know, a, a, a tradition, just a way of doing something, or a tr- tradition, capital T tradition, that becomes traditionalism? Well, it's when you equate that with the right way of living out your Christianity. As in, this is the way all people in all places must obey the word of God. Or this is the only way you can rightly obey God's word here. You see, what happens is when human traditions become what we might call a capital T tradition, they assume authority over the word of God in our lives. Sometimes in the life of the church. So what might this look like? It can look like a church that spends more time thinking about a church constitution than about the Word of God. It can look like a church that sets aside what God's Word says about how we treat one another for preferences about how we interact or how we worship. It can look like any human tendency to forget what God says in favor of leaning into our capital T tradition or preferences. And here's the thing about tradition. We tend to view, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm saying we, I'm not saying you, I'm saying we tend to view our traditions as very reasonable preferences and to view the tradition of others as kind of pharisaical capital T traditions, don't we? There's a tendency to judge ourselves, to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and to judge others a little bit differently. So how can we tell if we're convictional Christians who are just living out our lowercase t traditions, submitted to the word in all we do, or how do we know if we've elevated our traditions to give them more value than the word itself? Now, it's been a while, and I don't even think it's politically correct anymore to say you might be a redneck if. So we're not going to say that this morning, all right? But I'm from the upstate of South Carolina, so I'm going to say you might be from the upstate if. Okay, so, so that, that's what we're going to do here. So, for instance, you know, you might have heard Jeff Foxworthy made these popular back in the day. You might be from the upstate if you mow your front lawn and you find more than three cars. Or you might be from the upstate if you think the six to ten pounds on the side of the diapers package means how much the diaper will hold. And so there are kind of different ways of kind of different passphrases, different catchphrases. And so we're going to do this now. You might be a traditionalist if... So here's some ways to know if you might be a traditionalist. One, you might be a traditionalist if you spend more time thinking about your tradition than meditating on the Word of God itself. In other words, as you think about the patterns of thought that dig their way into the grooves of our lives, we spend more time thinking about God's actual words or about the way we feel about how we experience that, about our preferences or our traditions. Second, you might be a traditionalist if you mistreat others for the sake of that tradition. In other words, God's real clear 
about how we treat one another. And most often, the most vicious disagreements that Christians have are things about which God is not real clear. And sometimes we set about what God is real clear, we set aside that for the sake of things that God's not as clear about, and we hold of that tradition more valuable than what God actually says. A third way, uh, you might be a traditionalist if your tradition shapes, shapes your Christian experience as much as, or sometimes even more than, the gospel itself does. In other words, it's what we prize, what magnify the gospel, the clear living out of the gospel, the clear proclamation of the gospel, the clear one another's of the gospel, or is it a tradition, a way of experiencing the gospel? And the fourth one, and truthfully, this is a challenge for any of us, is if you surround yourself only with those who affirm your tradition, and you have a hard time living peaceably with people of differing views, and of course we're talking here within the bounds of Scripture. So there are things that are clearly outside of what Scripture says. We're not talking about that here. God's Word's clear about that. We're talking about things in which there's a measure of Christian practice that's scripturally allowable, and, and if we have a hard time living with those who think differently than us. And here's the bottom line. We all have some traditionalist in us. That is, we all have a tendency to take the Word of God and then view it through the lens of our tradition. Now, how do I know this is true? I know it's true because we were talking about this this week at the uh, dinner table, and I was telling my kids about their traditions. Now, their, their traditions are different than your traditions, but, but, but their traditions nonetheless. So, for instance, the tradition here might be my toys are my toys, and your toys are your toys, and, and we don't mix. So when I find you playing with my toys, my tradition says, that's not okay. And so what do I do? I snatch, I hit, I yell, I whatever for the sake of my tradition. Now, we call that selfishness, we might call that unkindness, but it's someone fighting for a tradition. I mean, these patterns are in our life from the very earliest days of our lives. And if you don't think about that, just take two three-year-olds, put them in a room, and, and see what happens. They'll be capital T traditionalists really, really fast, and they'll fight for their tradition really, really hard. We've all got it in us. But, and we've all got this pattern, but at the same time, the word, you know, it's like that mirror, and sometimes it shows us views of ourselves that we don't want to see, and sometimes it hits us right between the eyes, doesn't it? Now, we don't have to drill down too far into the life of Ashley River to see that this can be true, do we? And we have options as to how we can respond to this. We can harden our hearts like the Pharisees are going to do here. Or we can pray like Hosea 10, 12. Lord, break up the hard ground of my heart. Give me a soft heart toward your spirit, toward your word. Give me a heart of love toward my brothers and sisters in Christ. God, make my heart soft to your word. Break up the fallow, hard ground of my heart. So then how do we guard against the tendency toward traditionalism? First is, like Hosea, we have to soak our soul in the word. You can't fight the tendency of your heart to make your own rules, to love your own authority, apart from submitting yourself to a higher authority, a perfect authority, a final authority, the authority of the Word of God. Secondly, we cannot do this on our own. 
anyone left to himself will pursue his own devices. We must live in community with committed disciples of Jesus. We've all got blind spots. And the definition of a blind spot is you can't see it unless someone or something else helps you see it. We've got them individually and we've got them together. We need people who love the Lord and who love us speaking into our lives and helping us see these blind spots. Thirdly, we've got to submit to a local church and other godly authority. In other words, we all have the tendency to think not only can we run things, we should be the one running things. It's good for us to live out our lives in the way that Ephesians 5 says, to submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord. And the last one I think an important one is to ask ourselves this. When was the last time I changed my mind about something I felt strongly about in light of what Scripture itself has to say? Because if we all got blind spots... We've got things that are hard to see, and God's Word is constantly confronting and changing us. We ought to be constantly reforming our thinking and living in light of the Word of God. Teachability is such an important character quality. It's one way we know if we have true humility. So let's take a minute. Examine our hearts. I mean, hold, hold that mirror up and look at what's there. Hold the mirror of God's Word up. Don't try to get the best angle. Don't suck it in. Don't look at the hairline at a different angle. I mean, let's be real before the Lord because God already knows who we are. There are no secrets from God. God already knows. It's just a matter of will we admit to ourselves what God himself already knows to be true. Now, Jesus has the authority to rebuke these men on his own. But as he so often does, he calls on Scripture itself as his witness in verses 17 and 7 to 9. Verse 7, Jesus unleashes on them, you hypocrites. When these people believe they're the best, Jesus says, you're the worst. And then he appeals to their own Scripture, not to their tradition, but to their Scripture as a witness against them. He did it with the law, honor your father and mother, and now he does it with the prophets. He quotes from Isaiah. Now, Isaiah prophesied seven centuries before Christ, and verse 7 tells us that when Isaiah was speaking, he was speaking about these people. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? And then there's this pattern here. You say you honor your parents, but then you keep what you should give to them. He says also, you honor God, verse 8, with your lips, but not in your hearts. And then verse 9 gives us the bottom line accusation against these people. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments, not of God, but the commandments of men. In other words, they replaced a true heart religion, true relationship with God with external religion. And they have replaced God's words with men's words, with their words. Brothers and sisters, worship is empty, vain apart from the Word of God. God, not man, has the right to dictate how we worship. So human words can derive from God's words in worship. But human words don't drive our worship. God's Word does. Human tradition doesn't drive our worship. God's Word does. 
So if our worship becomes filled with human tradition and separated from the word of God itself, our worship, like the Pharisees' worship, becomes meaningless. The word Jesus uses here is vain. It's empty. In fact, you might say the more that the word drives our worship, the more God-honoring it is. And as our worship and thinking drift from the word itself, we drift from God himself. Well, there are a number of biblical definitions of sin. Breaking God's law, falling short of the glory of God. But at its most basic, sin is a worship problem. It's the tendency to value our thoughts more than God's thoughts. It's to worship the creature, as Romans 1 says, more than the creator. Sin is taking anything, even a very good thing, and setting it up in an ultimate place. In the Pharisees' case, it was lifting their tradition, capital T, tradition, to the ultimate place. We do the same thing, we just don't call it that. It can happen with our career. We can elevate our our career to the ultimate place. It can happen with a hobby. It can happen with chasing a ball. It can happen with even really good things, family, kids. The problem is not those things. The problem is the factory of our heart, and our hearts are really good at making idols. They're idol factories. We can make an idol out of anything. And ultimately, we cannot fix our heart by taking away that thing. You can't fix it by taking away a tradition. You can't fix it by not having a career. You can't fix it by not having kids. The only thing that can happen is, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, that God changes our hearts. He makes us a new creation in Christ. And Him creating a new person in place of the old, that's the only way that we can kill the idols of our hearts. It's not something we can do on our own. It's something that God must intervene. It's something that God must do through the gospel. And so if you're here this morning and you're recognizing yourself, either this capital T traditionalism or any other idol that your heart is making, would you turn from your sin? Recognize that life will be futile. You cannot fix this on your own. Your only hope is to cry out to God, God, I am like these Pharisees. God, my heart is an idol factory. My idol is different, but God, it's there. And would you rescue me by your mercy and grace through the blood of the Savior, Jesus Christ? That's our only hope. And so if you're here this morning and recognizing God is just shining the light of the gospel in your heart, would you turn from your sin and would you trust Jesus? Jesus died on the cross, lived a perfect life so that we might have life through him. And Jesus comes along and he convicts us to show us how much we need him. And then when we walk with Jesus, our lives are a lifelong pattern of repentance and faith because of what God has done for us in Christ. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.